Today's sponsor is Backbox. Backbox is a multi-vendor network automation platform that lets you automate every device on the network through a single console. It supports network and security devices from 180 different vendors. For example, with Backbox, you can execute an OS upgrade across Cisco, Checkpoint, and Palo Alto firewalls with a single click. Get an eval copy and see for yourself at backbox.com slash packetpushers. Welcome to Heavy Strategy, the technology strategy show of where we prefer unanswered questions to unquestioned answers. We have a whole set of unanswered questions right here, which has to do with the role of the networking team. Um, we've talked about this a bunch, but I'd like to circle back and pose a very simple question to you, which is, is the networking team in the service business, the project business, or the product business? Okay. Before you answer, maybe you can explain the difference between the three, because <laughs> I'm not clear on them. Whenever I say the networking team, most of my professional focus has been around networking, but it could also be any part of the infrastructure. This is not about developers, although some of it probably relates to in-house development or in-house application support. I'm more focusing here on the infrastructure. So let me just say that. So if you are building a team that's doing infrastructure, do you see that team or do you structure that team or do you operate that team, that group of people to deliver a service to the company, to deliver projects to the company, or are you in the business of offering a product to the company. So you're an internal product team delivering products to the company. I've been in companies which I think have done either and all of those. And increasingly, I'm, I was originally very, very certain that networking was a service to the company. Or I'm going to stop you though, because mm. you're using terms you haven't defined yet. So mm. can you define what a service what a service is, what what a project is, and what a product is, okay. or service manager, product manager, project manager. So if we take a look at the project-oriented model, which was very popular mm -hmm. 10, 20 years ago when ITIL was ascendant, and the idea was is that the company would come to you and say, we're going to deploy an accounting solution, and we need some infrastructure for that. Could you please help us with a project to deliver the infrastructure for that? The internal IT team was then responsible for that project. Increasingly, even operating that back in the day was a project. So somebody would be assigned to the accounting operations forever and ever going forward. And they would be responsible for maintaining the HP UX system that would be running the accounting application or whatever it might be. Do you recall that? So era? basically you're saying in the hmm. network world, you would be saying, oh, the network project would be project number one is build the network. Project number two is maintain the network. Yes, that's right. And that's how okay. ITIL came around was that everything became a project. Everything had a budget and a gap analysis. And then the gap was always being addressed. Repeat at will. And that became much more untenable as these uh, infrastructures became shared. If you're running a WAN initially to access the accounting system and you have a project, but now it's being used for Microsoft Office and printing, that's a very simple use case, but one that everybody's got. Whose project is it? Who owns it? Is it the accounting project? Is it the IT team as a project? So I think the project model collapsed when the infrastructure became shared. Project worked if you said the WAN is obsolete and so then you would come along and say, well, we need to define a project that would upgrade the WAN. I would agree with you 100%. In fact, one of the things that drives me bonkers is when I'm talking to CIOs who are constantly talking about managing a project portfolio mm. and the infrastructure person, I'm like, what is your project portfolio? That mm. doesn't make sense at any level for any kind of shared infrastructure. And I think you've hit on a really good point, which is the point at which infrastructure became shared is, is the point at which the project model just breaks. That's right. And it really does because mm -hmm. you're not able to 
capture the value of shared infrastructure. You're not able to devote the necessary resources. And as a result, it goes to hell in a handbasket. And then none of, none of your other projects work. Well, the operations was not part of what we thought of in IT when we were running around using ITIL-like operational structures. It was always just like the help desk operated it. But really what so, happened was the project teams were actually operating it in their spare time. Project is essentially this model of beginning, middle, and end, once and done, mm. ITIL model, and we agree that it's not really appropriate for shared infrastructure. No. So I don't think so. I think, shared infrastructure, I think the point here is that shared infrastructure broke the project-oriented model. So ITIL yeah. doesn't work if you're going to share the infrastructure between multiple services. It, the question then becomes, who pays for it? And so the obvious thing then was, well, IT gets a budget to manage the shared infrastructure. That budget always got pulled in a million directions and things didn't get fixed. And then the accounting team went, hang on, you're already getting your own budget. Why am I paying you? <laughs> Why am I giving you more budget to upgrade my service? Why isn't the IT, but you know, that sort of stuff. There was all these tensions in that project model. So another uh, absolutely. way- Absolutely. So, so we tossed that one aside. So and then we moved to the on product business. Product. Hey, everybody, we're pausing the conversation to tell you about today's sponsor, Backbox. Backbox is a network automation platform that supports network and security devices from over 180 vendors. With Backbox, you can automate any task that you can perform manually on any network device. Backbox comes with thousands of pre-built automations and the ability to customize automations without the need for scripting. Intelligent, conditional automations streamline tasks that once took several steps. For example, verifying available storage space on devices before beginning operating system upgrades. Built from the ground up as a multi-tenant solution with role-based administration and a REST API, Backbox is both powerful and scalable. And with their award-winning customer support, you're never on your own. Get a free evaluation copy at backbox.com slash packetpushers and find out for yourself why businesses and service providers worldwide trust Backbox to automate critical tasks on over 100,000 networks. Once again, that's backbox.com slash packetpushers. So yeah, I think that there was a real effort, I'm going to say 10 years ago, to say we're offering an, a product to the company. So our goal as an IT team is to deliver, you know, we're going to provide a managed server or a managed network or a managed IT infrastructure to the business. And our goal was to build it up in some way that it was kind of like a product. Remember the chargeback era was probably the best example where we were all going to charge back every server back to the, the back to the people that used it so the accounting people would the IT team were the people best placed with the greatest expertise to buy servers cheaply and effectively and to then be able to say well we know that you're using this much of a server this much of a network and this much of you know this much of headcount and we're going to charge you back for it and that didn't really work either but do you remember that era I do, I do, and yeah, I, I it wasn't as intense as the as the project era. It didn't have no. as much of an impact, but yes, I do remember that. Now, weirdly, the product business is what cloud computing took a lot of that model because what it did was said, well, we have to rent this back to people, so we're going to do chargeback because ultimately, cloud is a rehash. That part of of cloud computing or the billing model, the business model, is definitely a hark back to where we were in the late two thousands, which was all chargeback. But what the clouds were able to, or the cloud companies have been able to do, is use software to automate the chargeback. But more particularly, they were so large that they could go to Intel and demand that they give them the billing intervals on a CPU. One of the things that we saw about 10 years ago was that Intel added a new set of API functions to the chips, literally to the CPU chips, so that you could take the number of CPU ticks and use it to bill. If your VM was running this hard, it was actually pulling the data out of the CPU about how much your VM was using. You can easily see how that 
you know, how that translates to networking, because you can say, well, you use this many packets over the network. So, mm. you know, therefore here your bill looks like this. So the weird it's thing about this many packets at mm. this quality of service. Right? That's right. And But effectively, the, the weak point here came with the product business model was when IT would be saying, well, we'll offer you this product. And then the internal business units would go to a third party and say, no, we want the product from this one. Yes. And in fact, you're right. Now that you mention it, now that you put it that way, I spent a bunch of time. Again, this is one of those things that annoys me no end. Hey, we think we can get our WAN cheaper from an outsourcer. Of course, you can get your WAN cheaper from an outsourcer for the first year. (laughs) And then they make it up on the remaining six years because essentially these things are so difficult these contracts are so difficult to negotiate that nobody wants to do them more than they absolutely have to. So they negotiate these these seven-year contracts. They lock you into rates which are incredibly competitive for the first year. And by the seventh year, mm-hmm. keeping in mind that price compression is on the order of 20% year over year for network services, by year seven, you're paying double or triple what your peers are paying. And, and quite often, the customer didn't know how to consume the product. They had no internal exactly. skill. Exactly. Look at Salesforce, right? There's an entire industry around making Salesforce work for you. But uh, yes. They would in sign fact, up for some fact, product. Train people. Yes. Yeah. They thought yeah. it was like buying a car and then forgetting that the car needs to be serviced every three well, to six months. And I, yeah. and I think there's another hidden problem in the product model, which is this. Hmm. The idea of usage-based billing is certainly very seductive because you say, well, you know, everybody should pay for what they use. If it's shared, you know, if... I'm transmitting your packet. I can't be transmitting Greg's packet. So therefore, you know, you should pay and not Greg. But people forget that usage-based billing discourages the use of the resource. So one Mm. of the reasons that, you know, email and later texting took off to the degree that it took off is because it was a flat rate model. And everybody said, oh, my God, this is way better than the stupid telephone model where I pay for every call. And what happened is the volume of data that got transmitted was infinitely more on a flat rate model because it encouraged consumption. That's right. And then Jeevan's paradox kicked in. We started to use more and more bandwidth. So Printing over the WAN became possible, you know. Became possible and then became standard. So (laughs) the key thing here is, you know, you have to ask yourself, do you want people to be using a shared service like the network or do you not? Mm. And the first answer is, well, we don't, obviously, because it's expensive because we have to maintain it, blah, blah, blah. If if you think about infrastructure and the role that infrastructure should be, it's an enabler. Hmm. You have business processes that you're supposed to be doing. Those business processes require applications to instantiate them. In order to do those business processes, you need the enabler of infrastructure. If you put artificial barriers in the way, oh, you're going to consume this, so it's going to cost you that, Mm. then you're not going to be consuming the business process, the thing that makes you money, (laughs) as much as you would otherwise. That's kind of a mistake because your competitors who are going to be much more aggressively deploying business processes that make the money will be succeeding. I think also the other thing too is that when business units went out directly to third parties in the late 2000s, early 2000, you know, 2010s, they'd need somebody to become an expert in that thing and they would always turn to the IT team. And then the IT team was not funded. Salespeople would go out and buy Salesforce because that was the thing that they wanted to have. And then they turned to the IT team and said, well, we need help making Salesforce run. The IT team would look at them and go like, well, we, we don't know. You didn't yeah, give us didn't any headcount. You didn't right. ask us, what do we want us to do? Back to the infrastructure, you still have the same problem that you and I have expounded on many times, which is mm. you don't really save money by outsourcing. All you've done is say, mm. okay, I'm going to use the outsourcer's expensive network engineers, but then I have to have really, really good project managers in-house to manage the outsourcer. So six of one, half a dozen the other. I'm just deciding which skills I want to invest in and keep in-house. Mm. Basically, we've agreed that that 
uh, you really shouldn't be taking a project-based approach because that doesn't serve the purpose of shared infrastructure. We've highlighted some of the weaknesses of the product approach because it essentially discourages the consumption of the product that mm -hmm. actually is a business enabler. Let's talk about services. Services is what you want, what you actually wanted. What you, what the business wants is a, is a technology service. They want to be able to go and buy an application from a company and then just bring it to the IT team and say, please run this service for me. So I want you to run my print servers. I want you to do my authentication. Uh, and you've got to offer those as a service. I think probably if I had to pick out the major idea of the service is that you have to be having be service ready. Now, we talk a lot about service readiness in IT. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is the idea that if you're going to have a service ready to offer to the business units, you have to have capacity ahead of customer demand. There is no company that I've ever worked for that was willing to fund the IT team in advance. That is to say, you know, we know that you're going to need more computers in the next 12 months. Actually, my clients have done that, but mm. you're right. It's an uphill battle. Usually what it takes is a CIO who actually has a finance background who gets the idea mm. that you can't wait until you need something to suddenly go build it. That's right. That essentially doing that costs more than doing it right the first time. Okay. That and, kind of mindset will let you do it. And then there's also the gap between service and project. So for a lot yes. of organizations, they over-rotated on projecting and, and ITIL frameworks and came up with crazy ideas around there has to be a gap, you can address the gap, and only the gap is what's important, and you're not allowed to change the gap analysis. So once you require state the project scope, the scope can't creep because that would be a failure in organization. Or And, of course, service is a recognition that you can't possibly understand what the final requirements are, so what you need to do is take an approach of continuous investment and even early investment in skills, training, knowledge and resources. Like you have to buy hardware in advance or buy extra bandwidth or buy solutions that scale. But that requires people to understand the idea of service. But when you're sitting in a team of 4, 20, 30, 40 people who've been steeped in ITIL, making that transition really requires just a mammoth change and I I don't and I think it I literally blame ITIL for the lack of a transition to a service oriented architecture or service oriented well I, I want to come back to this because I think mm. this is really important and I think we both agree fervently mm. that that networking should be offered as a service oriented architecture with all that entails mm. which as you said continuous investment continuous investment in training continuous investment in mm. test driving new technologies etc cetera, etc cetera. I want to come back to that because I think that's a really important thing to noodle on but before I do, I think one of the challenges that certainly my clients have, and I don't know that I have a great answer for them, is how granular should you be offering the services? So, for example, you mentioned the whole notion, I, oh, gosh, I can't remember what it was. Hmm. But like we talk about saying, OK, you've got an identity service. You've got a WAN service. Should you have multiple WAN services or just one WAN service that has multiple characteristics? Like how do you decide how granular to make things? Uh, and that's a real question, Greg. And that's really know. difficult. So one of the things that we talked about in some other shows is this concept of an enterprise architecture team. Mm -hmm. Back in the days of ITIL, we did use an enterprise architecture team to try and bring the projects into a common focus, to try and build a service out of the projects. And that's what I, I sometimes look at enterprise architecture and say, we're going to stay with this brand of server built around this tactical solution because it makes sense for us to run it, to share that across the portfolio. It was a very much an attempt to do that. 
Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you're going to try and say everything's a project, well, then what you try and do is stitch the projects together so there's a common thread against them. When really what you wanted to be doing is continually investing in your infrastructure. So you would want to be saying, oh, that, that router out there is okay, obsolete. Okay, but you're kind of weaseling out by punting to the architecture team and then getting back to the investment discussion, which is very important and I do want to get mm. back to it. But essentially your answer is, well, part of the job of the architecture team is to decide how granularly to to offer services, you know, how specific they should be. Yeah. And granted that we can't necessarily answer that question here because besides, we're all about unanswered questions yeah. <laughs> uh, as opposed to unquestioned answers. What are some of the things people should take into consideration when they're trying to decide how granular to make their service offering? I think it's, I, I think today, knowing what we know now, so let's pretend that yesterday is done and, <laughs> and we can't go back and change yesterday. I would look at the cloud providers and see what they're doing. Because this is effectively what they've done is taken offering technology as a service rather than anything else. And so if you could look at AWS and Azure and GCP networking or their server functions or their application services and then say, why am I not offering a common SQL infrastructure? to everybody and then saying you can have this common SQL service that everybody can use. And what happens under the SQL API doesn't actually matter. There's just a team of people underneath that working out what servers and how to optimize the performance of the SQL and how to. So I'm I'm listening to you and I agree with you and I like hmm. the nugget of look to the cloud providers for examples. I'm thinking, though, that what I've seen and what you see in the cloud providers is that Mm. over time, the trend is going to be to fragment and offer each tiny thing as its own service for lots of reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So for lots of reasons, the, Mm. the real reason is because you make more money that way if you're the cloud provider. And I would imagine that the same dynamics would be at play in an enterprise. So the advice to the architecture team would be then in that scenario, hey, let it roll along, be responsive to the needs of the customers, watch what the, what the cloud providers are doing. But every year or 18 months, do a rationalization exercise that asks yourself the question, can we profitably combine some of these services so that we can simplify and streamline our service offerings? Because we know that the natural tendency is going to be this fragmentation and proliferation of services. And that's okay up to a point, but we'd mm. like to constantly keep that in check, you know, prune it. Well, I think one of the interesting things is once you look at what the clouds have done with the service and it became inherent mm-hmm. in their product, that it became a service. It was never a gap analysis. You know, Under the hood, there's a team, usually a small team of eight to 12 people building that service. And then they may rely on adjacent services to provide key building blocks. Amazon's S3 is not just 10 to 12 people, but the people who build the product core and then underneath that is a range of other teams actually mounting hard drives and uh, researching yeah, yeah, yeah. the optimum, you know, all that sort of stuff, right? It's Sorry. not like um, S3 is just 12 people, you know, a, a table, a pizza of people. Each of the sub-functions of the S3 service is then broken down into lots of very small teams and they're focused on very narrow sets of functions. But the key thing about the service-oriented approach is that you are micro-segmented or you're micro-tenanted. This idea that everything lives in its own VPC is absolutely what you want to do. Now, whether you implement the service-oriented model on an off-prem cloud or an on-prem cloud doesn't matter. But the point is that what happens in the physical and uh, technical infrastructure underneath it needs to be pre-invested. It has to be there before you need it. Does that make sense? 
It does. And actually, I said we were going to come back to the to the investment. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to do that because I know we're running close to the end mm -hmm. of the show. But I think you highlighted a couple things and just passed over them really briefly that I'd just like to reiterate because I think they're sort of important. One of the big differences between the service oriented model and the other two, the project or product, is this idea that there's a regular budget that's designed not just for operations, but actually continuous improvement. And the model that you've talked about with the small teams putting to get, you know, hmm. continually improving, what that means is you need a budget that's an ongoing budget for anything from testing new technology and determining its impact on operations. Don't forget that as part mm. of the new technology testing, assessing new technology and optimizing the service portfolio. And that's all got to be done on an ongoing basis. It can't be kind of one yeah. of these, oh, wait a second, we've got to modernize the WAM. Let's everybody jump in yeah. and do it. And now we'll be done for that's five right. years. You've got to have you know, these no, progressive upgrades because you, you can't go through the old way of, you know, this is the gap and then this punctuated approach to, Oh, you know, and then throwing yourself into a project and everybody works really hard and then everybody rushes over the line exhausted and they've done one thing. You upgraded the WAN, upgraded the data center, upgraded the, you know. I mean, basically the way to look at it, it's a horrible example, but it's kind of realistic. It's like housework. Yeah. You know, if, you're, if your idea of housework is I like really clean the house once yeah. a year and the rest of the time I just throw dirty plates in the corner. <laughs> It's not but that's a very good explanation for <laughs> right. ITIL, I must say. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly, which is why that's we all right. hate it. And <laughs> I do think the, the key behind the service is this idea of continuous investment. That doesn't necessarily mean it has to be done in advance, although generally I think it would be done in advance to be successful. I think what needs to be in advance is at least the reliability of the budget mm. so that, you know, yes, you may need to reduce a budget yeah, for yeah. business reasons, but you should be able to give people six months to a year warning so that you don't, don't start a proof of concept and then suddenly discover, oops, uh, that quarter's budget just yes. got slashed. There's got to be some degree of predictability and so that you can say, okay, fine, we can't test five products next quarter. We're going to test yes. three because of budget constraints, but not, oh, we're testing, oh, we're not that, testing. And that doesn't mean that you would take everything that a public cloud does and say, copy it, because that would be impractical. Right. You would have to be questioning what it is that you're going to take, what it is that your particular business is. or More importantly, the off-prem clouds are now trying to be everything to everybody. They don't just want to sell VMs and network access and mem CPU memory and bandwidth to people. They want to sell S3 as a service. They Now they want to sell you databases as a service. Now they want to sell you data lakes as a service. They want to sell you threat management as a service. Those are great ideas, and that's the model that you should be copying. I think one of the things that we could take away from off-prem clouds for on-prem infrastructure is say, I could evaluate those models and copy those models as to what should happen in my on-prem. And I should be able to use the pricing that they've got as a benchmark for my internal pricing. I'm going to take that a step mm. further. And I think we may have to do another episode on this because I think, you know, there's a lot of drill down here. One of the things you said earlier uh, resonated with me because part of the whole notion of offering something as a service is that at the end of the day, your customers don't care what infrastructure you built it on to offer the no. service. They are buying the service, so they shouldn't care whether you're operating your own MPLS network or whether it's an SD-WAN network or whether you bought network as a service from a cloud mm. provider. And I think one of the key things that network and infrastructure folks should be thinking about generally is, okay, this is what I'm offering my clients. This is the mm -hmm. service mm -hmm. face to my clients. One of the things they should be constantly optimizing and improving is, hey, what's the right mix of on-prem, off-prem? Is there a cloud service that I can plug into my service offering 
that where my special sauce is bundling all the right components to deliver the specific business service that my customers need. And behind the scenes, I can be doing it faster, better, cheaper by changing suppliers and, in fact, changing supplier models. Now, uh, going from on-prem routers to network that's as a right, service, which is what example. we've seen a lot of people do is literally move to network yeah. as a service, where they just send the traffic into the into the net into the internet on the public WAN, and lo and behold, something happens to Off it. You and go. It's, there, there is some element of shared infrastructure in the back, and local on owned or local infrastructure, but by and large, it's much more flexible than the old model. If you want to see an example of customers doing this, I think there are signs of this being happened in the market. So you, this isn't a radical out there idea. You look at HP GreenLake and Dell Apex and their ability to say, mm-hmm. we will just sell you an infrastructure that supports this amount of compute with this many VMs. How we do that is yes, not a Whether we choose to use AMD Apex or, you know, <laughs> Intel CPUs is, you know, and if you, as before you need the capacity, we'll have more there waiting for you to place your next order. Those services are expensive because you're actually paying them right. for the pre-built infrastructure, the infrastructure in advance to meet. The, now, that is only in the data center. And we are seeing those services now start to add SQL databases and application services, and they're partnering with third party. Service proliferation is the bane of the service-oriented mm-hmm. approach, but it's also the boon because, you know, everybody, there's the possibility that every business client gets exactly the service yeah. they want. The downside is you don't want to be managing a portfolio of 57 million services when you could just do yes. three. It's so. evidence that this isn't a crazy idea. This is actually something happening in the market. My cutting edge clients are mm. saying, hey, we've discovered ITIL has real limitations when it comes to infrastructure. The project approach doesn't work. We tried the product approach and that doesn't work either. We think this service approach is going to work, but we need some help putting it in place. And I think realistically, you're seeing other enterprises do a service-oriented approach for infrastructure, network infrastructure, but all infrastructure. So I think that's a good thing. If you're if you're listening to this and saying, wow, this is brand new, it it isn't. It is cutting edge. Enterprises are doing it. And I think there are a lot of uh, unanswered questions right now that we can dig into at a later date about how to do this most effectively. Mm. Well, what do you think? Uh, if you're in the audience and uh, you think about this idea, why don't you give us some follow-up at packetpushes.net slash yeah. FU, and we can then take that on board. Maybe you want us to expand on a particular idea, ask a question, and we'll bring it back in the next show. This is actually a topic that was raised in the Packet Pushes Slack channel. Talking to somebody, and the core of this actually got taken from that chat, and we turned it into this because it, it sort of helped me crystallize this idea of product, service, shared infrastructure type idea of what we've put together here today. And I also think it, it gives a framework to understand why cloud is answering problems of the enterprise. What would you think, Jonah? I think, yes, I think you're absolutely correct. And I would just sort of double down on the whole notion of what do you think, yeah. listeners? We will certainly spend some time talking about how to do a service-oriented architecture now that we've agreed that it is the right thing to do. And don't forget, you. you can also go over to community.nemerdes.com, join up with Jonah's community over there and argue with... <laughs> Argue with us there. Debate the questions. Sorry, not argue. Argue, Debate the questions. As always, thanks very much for listening to Every Strategy where the questions are probably better than the answer.